This is The Loaf Podcast. Welcome back to The Bakery, everyone, where we break bread with the world's finest. Today, we're very lucky to be joined by Spencer Matthews, entrepreneur and businessman. He began his journey on reality TV a long time ago, but since has made big leaps in the business and entrepreneurship world. He's the founder of Cleanco, a non-alcoholic spirits brand, and runs multiple successful podcasts. Spencer, thanks, thanks for coming on. But what, what an introduction, mate. That's uh, <laughs> only the finest, did you say? Yeah, we break bread with the world's finest. That's that's um, wonderful. I ho- I hope not to disappoint. Now, okay, we're looking forward though. How how are you? How you been? Uh, I'm great. I think uh, life is good. Uh, wife is great, which is probably my my first tip. You know, you want you want to make sure that the wife is is happy. Happy wife, uh, happy, happy life. life. Indeed, <laughs> but no, I, it's a cliche. But let me tell you something. It's it's absolutely <laughs> true. Uh, three kids, healthy. A uh, couple of dogs, one more irritating than the other, uh, on account of being a puppy. But no, mate, all is all is good. Business okay, could always be better. But um, but yeah, things are fine. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You can always push forward. You can always do better. You got a puppy, so you got like another kid. I know how that is. But um, we got we like to ask all our podcast guests the same question at the beginning, as you heard with the Loaf podcast. And we find you actually find out a lot about your guests through this question, but we want you to tell us your favorite bread. Ooh, I love a good, I love a good toasted sourdough or ciabatta. Am I allowed to? A nice fresh ciabatta is difficult to beat, yeah. right? If you toast that, whack some scrambled eggs on it, bit of pesto, you know, heavy salt, bit of pepper. Wow. That, there's not much. That's a developed not answer. Mu- developed yeah, not answer. much beats that. But also the ciabatta is quite versatile, quite good with a burger as well. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for that. You've given a nice in-depth answer there. We get, um, our most common answer is actually sourdough. I know. So, so t- that's the to- stereotypical one. I know. Toss that one in the bin then. We'll go with ciabatta. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ciabatta. That's good. So back um, in the bread we're bin. Gonna- <laughs> exactly. We're going to get right into it if that's okay with you. Of course. Um, right into the deep end. So we wanted to ask a little bit as an introduction to Clean Co about your own personal story with alcohol and that kind of thing. Um, so I've actually had some struggles in the past myself, not with over drinking constantly, but with uh, controlling the amount when I'm drinking. Yeah. Um, and I know that was a, a thing for you as well. So could you tell us a little bit about your journey with it and kind of the turning point that, that led you to make that change? Sure. Um, I drank excessively for many years, um, kind of thinking that it was fun. Like I only really realized that it was an issue or a potentially very serious issue in my late twenties, I would always um, look for work or jobs that would treat kind of socialising um, as a skill, really. So, so I was a I was a city broker. I worked for ICAP, and I mean, we would we'd pop out and have ten pints, you know, and you know, it, it wouldn't be unusual not to make it back to the office, and then. Uh, there would be times quite regularly throughout the week where you'd have to entertain clients and you'd be out in a club until four in the morning and then you're back at your desk at 6.30. And it was just this kind of really aggressive cycle where you would almost, I would almost drink just to feel normal. But at, at a young age, it all felt like part of the bravado of being a broker and it was all quite good fun. Um, I then, you know, I managed... Um, a kind of a nightclub promotional company with my pal. So we were then just living in nightclubs essentially. Um, but all of this, like, I don't regret too much of the 
of those times because it was, you know, an interesting learning curve and ultimately probably led me to making better decisions um, today. Uh, I I, I drank kind of, it it began, it began to create uh, problems with my personal life. It began to create problems at work. Um, And it was also creating problems with my family, which I think was uh, particularly important to me. I noticed that I was being trusted with less um, you know, my, my dad in particular would not include me so much in like the family discussions. You know, we're a very close family. Um, we like to think we help each other and try and progress the family kind of together. Um, and I was turning into kind of the real black sheep of, of all of that. Right. I, I, I was just being left out of, of stuff and just wasn't, you know, my brother would raise his eyebrows whenever I'd had have any kind of suggestion to do anything. And I was beginning to feel like, um, well, a bit of a loser for lack of a better word. Um, met this incredible woman who's now my wife, Vogue Williams, um, who really helped kind of change my life. Didn't specifically hone in on any particular um, element of, of of my life or kind of mistakes that I was making, but just she... Um, is wildly ambitious and, and, and works incredibly hard. And so it was just the dynamic between us was so different at times that it, she made me want to be better. Um, and so I'm an all or nothing kind of person um, and realized essentially that if I was going to keep my relationship uh, and, and marry this woman and have children with this woman uh, who I loved... I would I would need to to change my relationship with alcohol, but there was that and you know a bunch of other stuff. I was becoming incredibly lazy. Um, you know, I was I was I'd be happy to sleep in until ten, uh, and and just just you know it doesn't sound too late maybe to to <laughs> use students, but at the earlier, time earlier you know, I, I, I had I had I, I've always liked the idea of of working hard, but it was I was beginning to drift into a different place where any any heavy lifting any hard work would be put on the back burner and it was definitely because of um my my relationship with alcohol so sorry this is a really long-winded answer but essentially it was it was it was becoming detrimental to my health and wellness i was beginning to look a bit ill you know in, in my late 20s um i was overweight i was gray had huge bags under my eyes you know and, and it was just a bit of a re- I had a bit of a realization of kind of like who do I who do I want to be who do I want to who 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 am I really like am I the person that's happy to day drink and drink on my own in the evenings uh, or you know do I want to get after life and do I want to give myself the best chance of being a, a success like my dad and like my brother and like other people that I admire and respect um, so just packed it in I I, I, I packed it in. I was sober, well, teetotal uh, for about three years, um, always with a view that, you know, perhaps one day I would have a different relationship with alcohol and be able to to moderate and just have, you know, the odd drink every so often. And that's kind of where I am now. I drink, I'll have the occasional drink, but it's sort of, I'll never really plan it. I never really look forward to it. It's not, it's not really a thing. It's kind of how I imagine most people with a normal relationship with alcohol see alcohol. It's kind of, uh, which, which is, um, a place that I've worked quite hard to get to. And in that time, obviously I built Cleanco, which is now the largest independent non-alcoholic spirits brand in the world. 
Mm. It's interesting what you said just at the beginning, actually, as well, about how you're always seeking out jobs, which would kind of allow you to be drinking. So as a broker, obviously entertaining is a big part of it. You've said in podcasts before, the broking isn't actually, the brokeraging isn't actually the hard part. Mm. You just have to sort of tap some numbers in. And I think that self-justification process is kind of a large part of what allows people to stay like with any bad relationship with a substance or anything else. You're sort of telling yourself it's okay. Yeah. Um, and even going into your first therapy session, for example, you were like, oh, I don't need this. Like, what am I doing here? What sort of things would you tell someone to look for in themselves to, to get outside of that self-justificatory process? Because I know it can be quite hard to escape from. What sort of things would you tell someone to do to be more honest with themselves? It's a difficult question. I think, I think you're never, you're never going to get yourself out of it if you don't really want to. Right. So, so, and that's why it's so difficult to talk to people who you think might have a problem, you know, with, with, um, I have a, I have a podcast called big fish and, and we now do, uh, episodes that release on a Friday called big fish and chip with a guy called mm-hmm. chip. Summers. That's what I was talking about. That's where yeah, I heard that. Yeah. And, and he's, uh, he's a kind of ruthlessly honest, older gentleman who his, his approach to therapy might be quite different to call it a modern day therapist who might be a bit lighter with the way they approach things. Chip will just tell you exactly how it is. And if you don't like it, I guess you'll never see him again. But the harsh reality of hearing uh, something that's as impactful as what Chip said to me, did it for me, made me realize like, shit, is this actually like how people see me? Because I hadn't really realized that. Um, just for those of you that, that are unaware, so, so I'll make the story brief because obviously you guys have heard it, but, but it's kind of, you know, I went in to see Chip. I didn't think I had uh, an issue. I was doing it to appease my agent at the time who obviously did think that it was more of a problem than me. Uh, went and saw Chip and Chip, I sat in front of Chip and Chip looked at me and he went, he went, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, do you, do you realize how much you reek of alcohol? <laughs> And I hadn't even had a drink that day. I'd purposefully turned up sober. Uh, and I was just like, um, so I thought he was bullshitting me. Uh, and he was like, how many drinks did you have last night? I was like, one or two. I actually had had one or two, right? I wanted to turn up like bright and bushy tailed for this guy so that he said to, 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 to John, my agent at the time, like, you know, there's no issue here. And he literally was just like, if you're wondering why you don't land the jobs that you really want and stuff, it's because people think you're a waster. Like you reek of alcohol. It's obvious that you've been out. You don't take your life seriously. You don't take yourself seriously. Why should they take you seriously? And I was just like, okay, then. Uh, and we had like a, you know, a really good conversation, but I respected the honesty. Now, some people won't take well to honesty. Most, most people who, um, who drink too much probably know they drink too much. And if you know you drink, if you, if you put it this way, if you, if you think that you might have a drinking problem, you probably have a drinking problem. People that don't have drinking problems don't question whether they have a drinking problem. You know, it, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a non-starter. It's a non-issue. Um, people who do have a drinking problem, Chip's advice is to, is to kind of turn it back on yourself almost and say like, I'm, I'm a bit worried for you. You know, like I, I feel like if I'm going away for this week or something, I'm, I'm worried for instead of kind of you have a drinking problem, which of course could be quite aggressive, but I don't know. Listen, I think people, sorry to answer your question. I think people should just be honest with themselves and it kind of depends what you want out of life. I've come to realize, and I know again, it's a bit of a cliche, 
happiness um, is is really valuable. Like if if you can find happiness, that 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 is a really valuable thing to have. I asked all, all my guests on Big Fish to define success. And they don't all say happiness, of course, because it's in many ways a slightly lame answer, but it, but it's kind of, it, it's sort of true, right? Like if you're, if you're a billionaire who is miserable, um, you know, I, are you really successful? Like on paper, sure, but like your, your life is being spent, you know, in a way that you're probably not delighted with. Same goes for health. You know, if you're a, if you're a, I'm using a monetary uh, metric just as an example, but you know, if you're a billionaire or, or you have all the money that you thought you wanted, but you're really unhealthy, you know, it, 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 it's it's kind of I, I would value health more and potentially happiness more than than being um, incredibly successful financially. Although you know, I'm I do have capitalist tendencies and I am attracted to, to making money, but it's kind of like, yeah. I, I just think people should be, be honest with themselves. I think if you're, if, if you're waking up regularly, um, dusty and disappointed in yourself, then potentially try to make some changes. Like nowadays there are, there are so many alternatives to alcohol that actually not drinking alcohol is quite an easy habit to replace, right? Like it used to be the case back in the day that um, you fancy gin and tonic, the closest non-alcoholic alternative would have been a glass of tonic water or sparkling water or a Diet Coke. So there's a big compromise. Um, the gap between desire and compromise, the larger that gap is, the harder it is to change the habit. If you can have a non-alcoholic gin and tonic, you know, but it tastes and it tastes like a gin and tonic, and the way you make it is exactly the same. Then there's no real compromise on the behavior, and therefore it's an easier thing to shift into. Um, but yeah, everyone should really do their own thing, and I think I think going on a journey with it is important. You can't arrive, you know, where you're looking to get to without the rough patches. Sure. I mean, do you think that alcohol is always a problem? I mean. Do you think if 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 I, for example, have a healthy relationship with alcohol, then then it's okay for me, this is a hypothetical, but okay for me to get drunk three to four times a week? Or do you think that can still become quite an issue there? I, I think if you're getting drunk three to four times a week, then you don't have sure. a good relationship with alcohol. Okay. <laughs> but 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 okay. but that's just my view. And listen, I, I don't want to preach about um alcohol. I think it's it's fairly common knowledge that, you know alcohol is not good for you. There are no positives to alcohol. I'm not some health guru. I, I will have a drink every so often. I, I'm not anti-alcohol and neither is Cleanco. We, we're here as a business to offer an alternative to people that want to drink less or not at all. If you're perfectly happy, how old are you, Lucas? Uh, I'm 21. I know that it's uh, probably, you probably weren't talking about yourself, but, but if you, if yeah. you it, but if you were, you're 21 years old, if you want to go out and enjoy I mean, yourself and. Yeah, I do drink a lot. I know in uni and uni is very difficult to be fair. Dude, when, when stuff. I was, when I was 21 and this is not supposed to sound patronizing, I, I was oh. hammered all of the time, like literally all of the time. Right. <laughs> and it's kind of like, it's kind of. Uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely not here to say, oh, you know, people shouldn't be drinking. You know, I think everybody needs to go through it themselves. You probably are able to drink far more at your age than I can at my age. And it just go straight over you and you probably don't even feel hungover. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Like the obvious things to say are that, you know, 
alcohol is alcohol is a toxin. It's not good for you. There's no positives to drinking alcohol, right? So, so, so it's kind of, but like, I think people know that it's similar ish in a way to smoking, you know, like people are aware that smoking cigarettes isn't good for you, but people smoke cigarettes and that's fine. You know, if you want to smoke cigarettes, smoke cigarettes. Um, I think it's really important when discussing this stuff, not to ever have uh, not to ever tell people what to do or not to ever be preachy with it, but to just offer um, cool and interesting and accessible alternatives for those that are looking to to kind of bend their drinking habits. But it would be difficult to, um, you know, as an example, if my wife was was getting, I think there's a difference as well, by the way, to drinking and getting drunk. But like as an example, mm. um, you know, if you pop out and have, couple of bottles of beer with with dinner and go home and go to bed you know you're getting drunk is is quite a different process and and, and you know being drunk i would argue is is not that fun i think the process of getting drunk can be quite fun i suppose and like going out and enjoying yourself with your friends being drunk is not that great i don't think and uh, you know i've never i've never heard anybody in my life wake up hungover and say, I wish I drank more last night. <laughs> right. So it's, it's kind true. of like, it, it's kind of, I don't know, it, mate, it, it completely depends. And, and, uh, you know, I know lots of people who are very successful. Uh, and I use that word success because I'm quite interested in how people define success as, as you might know from listening to big fish. Uh, and it comes in all different shapes and sizes. Um, but I think it's an interesting word for that reason, right? Because because everybody has their own view of it. But but I you know I know a lot of people who would be considered by most to be very successful. How do you define success for yourself? Um, but just quickly, so I'll tell you. But just but just quickly, sure, I, I know sure. a lot of people who would be considered by most to be very successful who drink a lot, who would have several drinks every day, right? But they are family men who run enormous businesses who are great fathers, who are presents, who are able to provide whatever for whoever, uh, and they're brilliant people. So it's kind of, again, not at the risk of sounding boring. I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't drink alcohol. Most people that drink Clinko also drink alcohol. It's an alternative and they should be able to coexist. Um, how do I define success? Um, I, I, you know, be, being able, like freedom, I suppose, the freedom to be able to manage your time, um, <laughs> like kind of however you want is, is a, I, I'm not at the level where I can do whatever I want whenever I want. Uh, obviously I, I enjoy working. I love working. I think even if I, um, you know, whacked tens of millions in the barn, I would continue to, to work. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of that way inclined. Um, but no, I suppose being able to spend quality time with your kids, um, having love in your household and your family, uh, being financially, uh, you know, comfortable in, in the sense that, you know, you're not struggling, I suppose I would deem that to be a degree of success and, um, and just feeling, feeling happy, mate, to, to be honest, I, like it, it is. It's it's a, it's a very important metric that last one the, the happiness thing because I think because when you when you when you have tons of stuff going on and I, I and you know I I I have um I have three podcasts I run a business you know do the odd bit of TV bits and bobs it's kind of like it's very easy just to get bogged into a work routine and a regime that just drives you into the ground and if you're not enjoying yourself 
then, then, then what's the point? So talking about success, I mean, I, I, I pretty much wholeheartedly agree with your definition, but talking about success, let's move on to clean co a little bit. And that was what we were kind of introducing with the alcohol discussion. Could you tell us a little bit about the inception of it, the idea behind it? And I know you had a lot of successful fundraising ventures at the beginning. So how the beginning journey was and how it's going now. Cool. Yeah. So I, um, I was sober for about four days before feeling like a superhero. Right. But like, to be honest, I was, I was coming from a pretty low base. <laughs> so, like, so like I was coming from feeling, uh, beaten, battered and kind of deflated almost all of the time where like, literally if I like, if I kind of scurried up a flight of stairs quickly enough, like I would be sweating, like tying my shoelaces felt like a bit of an effort. Um, like walking the dogs, I would be a bit like, you know, like can't somebody else, like, you know, I, I was in a, a kind of really um, gray, dim zone in my life. Decided that to, to go teetotal at the time. Uh, this is 2018. And yeah, like four days in, four, five days in, it was like... Um, discovering yourself almost. And I'm aware that I sound a bit like a hippie when I say that, but, but it was kind of like, it was, I wanted to be, I suddenly realized, and it, it was quite a, it was quite a quick change, um, that I had, uh, more potential, you know, that, that potential that I thought I had growing up as like a, a kind of arrogant kid, like that I, I thought that I kind of probably could get my hands back on that. Um, and I was sober, I suppose after that is when I noticed change. I put myself out in the fresh air, kind of a lot more started to train, started to run, started to fill my time differently. Right. So that, like the average person in the UK spends 252 hours hungover every year. That's the average person. Right. So like, remember the average wow. person probably doesn't wow. drink very much. So, you know, if you're an above average drinker, you know, you're spending, you could be spending 500 hours hung over each year. That's 20 days, right? So like, so it's, 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 it's actually 21 days. Um, so it's kind of, it's just interesting to understand that you have more time, right? You're up earlier, naturally, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're more dialed in, you're more switched on. So I was sober for call it three, four months, something like that. And I, and I realized that, um, that the, the, this newfound thing that I loved was also relatively detrimental to my social life. So like, so I, I, I would still go out. I didn't find it nerve wracking to go out, you know, oh, what am I going to do? I was, I was very com confident and comfortable with my decision not to drink. And it, there was nothing to drink, right? So like you'd go out and, and people would be, there, there, was, there was, there was the odd non-alcoholic beer. Non-alcoholic beer was really new, right? So there was Heineken Zero, there was Beck's Blue, and Seedlip existed, but I'd never come across it, right? And, and it was kind of like, mm -hmm. but that, that's it, right? And it's kind of like, I wasn't a huge beer drinker before. I always preferred a cocktail. And, um, and essentially, I just realized that there, there was this whopping great big gap in the market. My sister-in-law is, is Pippa Middleton. Um, so my brother's married to Pippa. I went to one of their parties and, um, well, I call it a party. It's like a kind of gathering. Um, and, uh, and she said to me, would you like a, a non-alcoholic gin and tonic? And like my mind just went like, I, I'd never heard of that before. And it was like, to me, that concept, I was like, do you mean just like a tonic water with some lemon in it? And she was like, 
no, no, no. Like I have a non-alcoholic gin here. And I was like, what? So like it was seed lip and I had this non-alcoholic gin and tonic. And I was like, my brain just went into like crazy overdrive of like, why is this not a thing? How does this not exist? Why don't they call themselves gin? Why isn't it made with juniper? Like, why are they using peas and hay and bark? Like, what the hell? I'm going to go and make a non-alcoholic gin with juniper and it's going to be like the first of its kind. And I, and I just went into like psycho mode, basically, of like having to, I found my purpose basically, like then and there. Um, didn't do any market research didn't do did nothing at all right like i other than focus myself on becoming non-alcoholic gin man right <laughs> and, and 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 like i i i kind of flew around the country sorry i drove around the country i flew to ireland uh i went to a bunch of distilleries and i just said you know i want to make i want to make a non-alcoholic gin want to make it and and you know a lot of people just weren't able to wrap their head around it others thought it was really interesting we made a bunch of stuff that tasted like not great it's very difficult to make a spirit taste like a spirit with no alcohol because like mm. mostly what you're tasting is the ethanol right like it's um which is a kind of worrying thought in itself isn't it there's just ethanol like yeah that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're just drinking ethanol, by the way. Um, yeah. and, so, and so kind of you remove the ethanol, all of a sudden you're left with something that tastes like kind of botanically water. Um, so anyway, long story short, uh, we, we kind of developed a product um, and, and I had this incredible, um, and, and then came the problem of, of raising money in a kind of non-existent market. But it was really interesting and entertaining for me at the time because it's, I think that when when you don't know certain things and you have no experience of it, um, that can be really helpful. Like just just not understanding. Like I've never raised funds before, so you dive in and you're just like, you don't have any of the lingo and you don't have any of the what what they're looking for. All you have is in well, all I had was insane levels of optimism right? That we're going to be the biggest, best thing in the world and that everyone is going to drink this stuff. Um, and kind of not much else. So it didn't take long, by the way, I, I wouldn't suggest um, that that would be, I think at, at that stage of fundraising, like seed round, optimism, character, and, and the belief in yourself is going to get you a very long way. Um, obviously as the rounds get bigger, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to need uh, a lot more to, to back up your kind of plan and, and where you're going. But, but no, it was really exciting. The, the kind of the, the, the big turning point in the beginning was light speed venture partners who, who are one of the, the biggest funds in the world who famously don't do consumer products, um, wrote an article about, uh, looking to beat, looking for brands who are interested in trying to bypass the three-tier distribution system in the States. Like if you sell booze in the States, there's this like insane system where basically the thing changes hands like four times before it gets to you. And so it's a really mm -hmm. complicated system. Um, that's for alcohol. And so I read this article and it was written by a woman called Nicole Quinn, director of Lightspeed. And I thought, oh my God, well, like maybe we can bypass the three-tier distribution system because we don't have alcohol. And like, obviously that, she was talking specifically about the States, but I wrote them a note and just said, look, I'd love to chat to you. Uh, and I think we took a shine to each other, right? Because she, 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 she enjoyed 
the like raw determination and optimism just to kind of, you know, get this thing going. Um, and we had lunch once. Uh, we compared the first Cleanco product to Seedlip. She preferred it and she did a million pounds into the, into the seed round. And I only needed 400K, right? Because I, I had a few friends and family doing the odd kind of 100K, 150K ticket. No family at the time. Um, my family weren't quite ready to invest in me at the time. Uh, <laughs> got to give them was, some time. Yeah, yeah got to give them some time just to get on the old trust wagon. Um, uh, so, so no family at the time. Just, uh, just kind of uh, some friends who you know ha- had some disposable income and believed in the idea because it was always a good idea, right? Like non-alcoholic spirits, non-alcoholic cocktails, clean cocktails. Like it was a, it was a fun thing to believe in. Um, and so I only needed four hundred k, and I looked at Nicole and I said. Um, oh, thanks so much. That's amazing. Um, I'll just take 400 if that's okay. Cause that's all we need at the time. And she was like, when Lightspeed offer you a million quid in your seed round, you take a million quid. And I was like, okay, then I'll take the million quid. Uh, so, so it took the million quid and then we went off, um, off to the races. We got, we got a listing with Sainsbury's, um, who I think at the time were just, keen to explore growing the category and kind of pioneering it. They were the first players really to stock Seedlip and us I love um, and, and just kind of see where it, see where it went. And, you know, it wasn't long before um, our D2C business grew. This was right before COVID. So obviously COVID hit. Seedlip don't use um, influencers. Um, I know that because I asked to be one and they said no. Uh, and, and then we essentially... Um, Vogue and I started making clean cocktails in our kitchen throughout kind of lockdown and started asking people what they wanted to see from the brand. And we kind of just grew really organically, really quickly um, throughout that time. And, and now we're listed in 97% of, of British retail, any, anywhere that stocks non-alcoholic products were listed. And, um, and we're the third largest brand in the States. So the story, by the way, is, 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 is a very long one. Um, so feel free to interject <laughs> with, you know, there, there are obviously other points in the business that were like sure. big turning points sure. and, you know, I've made some massive mistakes as well, but I don't know where you want to take the interview, but were I to tell you the full clean co story, we'd be here for some time. So I'll let you guys chirps in. Yeah, no, I really like what you said in particular, though, about having no idea what you're doing kind of at the beginning. Um, and I think yeah. you said in on Jamie's podcast, Private Parts, you know, naivety is such a good thing. And we definitely feel that, you know, even still now, but especially at the beginning, we kind of had no idea what we were doing. Yeah. And allowing yourself to make that mistakes, working it out yourself instead of like relying on advice, then you find your way to the right path. Whereas if you rely on advice, then, you know, you could get taken down the wrong way a lot of the time kind of thing. Absolutely. And you've got to trust your gut. You know, like one of my, I, I, I would occasionally be told um, things that I knew felt wrong, right? Even as somebody with no experience and you end up listening to the better advice. And then of course it doesn't pan out and you go, God, I just wish I'd listened to myself. I can't remember who I was talking to recently, but they said your gut is never wrong right? Like if you have a gut feeling about something, you should follow your gut feeling. That's not to say that you shouldn't take good advice. Cleanco wouldn't be where it is today if I hadn't surrounded myself with brilliant people. Um, you know, it's absolutely impossible to do stuff on your own, in my opinion. But naivety is absolutely a superpower. Jamie Lang taught me that, actually. I used to think he was mm-hmm. full of shit. But like he's, <laughs> he said that and then I noticed it in my own journey. Um, you know, I would call my 
I would have called it like bullish nature, but actually it's just naivety. Like we, we would, I, I would call a bottling uh, company and say, right, so when can we get these bottles? You know, we need, we need 50,000 bottles. And, and they'd be like, oh, you know, there's a 18 week lead time for that. And I'd go 18 weeks. Like, what are you talking about? I'll drive up with a van and pick them up. And then we come to like, you know, how can we get around this 18 week thing? And they were like, well, um, I'm, you know, and it kind of stumps people, right? Because like sure. a normal person that you hire would just go, right, okay, what's the lead time? 18 weeks. Okay. And then they just budget and and plan for an 18 week lead time. Whereas like someone like I was just like, someone like me, sorry, was just like, well, I'm not willing to wait the 18 weeks. How do we, how do we make that six weeks? And, and, well, yeah, and just, to, just to, just to jump in here, it's just funny because our podcast, well, realistically, we're very small, but we've gotten really big guests just because we really just shoot for the moon, so to speak. We're just like, and everyone asks us like, well, how do you have such big guests? You literally started like five months ago. So I think the idea of like just, just going for it and being naive in a sense and not maybe taking yourself too specially, even too seriously and just going for it can sometimes be really beneficial. I, th- I think so. I mean, you know, it's, if, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't try, you'll, you'll never get it. And also it's kind of like a lot of these rules or, or, or conceptions of things are in place, you know, just so that society can function more, more normally, you know, and it's kind of like, I, why would it take 18 weeks to deliver a bottle, you know, I just, or 50,000 bottles. So it's, it's, it's a small example, but I just think that, you know, rules, particularly when building businesses are there to be broken. I think if you just follow the footprints before you, you're, you're just in, inevitably going to do a similar or worse job to the footprints that were ahead of you. So I think, you know, breaking, breaking barriers and bashing down walls and, you know, not listening to, to too much, um, kind of normal advice, I would call it is, is probably a good thing when starting a business. I think being as aggressive as possible, not actually aggressive, of course, uh, but, 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 but (laughs) but just like trying for, um, you know, trying to, trying to, to, to climb, you know, the largest mountains possible earlier are, are a good thing. I would have thought it's more exciting as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, before we 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 get into mountains, I I just wanted to to ask about, um, you know, the future of clean car. I mean, you're you're the CBO, and I want to ask you a little bit about like the the idea of branding it as a life less wasted, and, and where you see the company evolving, maybe potentially yeah. into CBD or, or, or anything along those lines. Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, so I was the CEO for a while. Um, I rushed the States. So I was attracted by a, an enormous kind of bells and whistles deal that um, was almost too good to be true. Uh, well, it was too good to be true, ended up being too good to be true. And um, in order to navigate um, kind of undoing a, a large portion of that and resizing the shape of the business over there, where the market's even more nascent than it is here. Uh, I brought in a far more experienced CEO uh, called Billy Peretti. Uh, he used to run Belvedere. He was the CMO at Belvedere and, and he was just very helpful to me throughout that process. And he's now the the CEO. Uh, and as you say, I'm CB. I just call myself the founder nowadays, really. Sure. I, I find, sure. you know, all these titles to be, um, uh, fine, but you know, whatever I, 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 you know, I'm very happy to hire somebody who is in charge of the marketing. And I essentially put myself in a position where I work for them. You know, like if I'm hiring somebody who is better than me in, in, in that field, I will then just go into doing whatever I can to support that person 
you know, rather than having to be the the front and top and head of something. I personally don't see that as being very important. Um, sure. But I will always be very proud to be the founder. So um, your question was, what, what, what's the future of the brand? Yeah, exactly. The future. Where, um, where you see it going now? We aim to lead the markets that we're in. So we're quite careful. We're the, we're the largest independent in the UK. We're the third largest independent in the States. Um, and we aim to be the largest independent in the States. We would be, you have to consider shelf life with these products. So if you're an alcohol brand, you, you would look for more explosive growth, I suppose, because it matters less about selling wholesale uh, and being on shelf in, in numerous locations, in numerous territories. Um, with us, and, and a mistake I feel that some of our competitors have made is, is to grow that top line as quickly as possible. They've just blasted out to as many people as who will buy the product as possible without the real marketing resource to support the listings. And what happens after, you know, 12 to 18 months, um, 18 in our case, 18 plus, but 12 for others, um, the, 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 the product will, will rot and, and you'll, I'm assuming you'll, I'm assuming you'll be delisted from that territory or, or those stores. So we have a very targeted view that we want to be in complete control of where we are and we want to lead the markets that we're in. Um, I think at some point, uh, as the market grows and develops, which, which it is doing particularly in the States, um, we want to maintain um, you know, our, our position and just grow the brand and penetrate more slowly, but deeply throughout the States. We started in 44 States, <laughs> which is, which is a kind of well, mistake. It was like being in 44 countries. And this is where I brought Billy in. It's too, it was too much, too difficult on the, on the kind of cash and the size of the business that we were to support that. So we're now in, uh, five yeah. States. We retained the 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 kind of relationship that we had with our incredible distributor, and we're, we're, it's just going to be a slower process, but a more manageable process that actually sees us selling more product, right? Because it's more targeted, more focused. So I don't know. Sorry, uh, lo again, long winded. I, I'm a very long winded person. Uh, but no you, should blame, you should blame my dad for that. Um, <laughs> once you get my dad talking, good luck, right? You, you'll be there for a few hours. Um, so, so no, we, we aim to be the, the biggest and the best mate. We want to be the leading independent sure. brand, yeah. uh, in, in the world, which we, which we already are actually in terms of volume sales. That's, that's the kind of consumer. And that's our buying, goal. That's our goal the with the podcast as well, you know, to be the biggest and the best. I think that always has to Big, be the biggest and the best, but we, we want to be the largest non-alcoholic brand in the world. Right. Sure. I think the word clean mm -hmm. is an incredible word. I think, I think describing your drink as a clean drink or a clean cocktail is a much more positive way than, than describing something as non-alcoholic or a mocktail. I hate the word mocktail. I just, I, I, I can't like, you can't, it's, got mock in it. it's not, yeah. yeah, you can't order a mocktail. Like, like it, it's just, it's just, I find it bizarre. So a clean cocktail, I think is, is, is a kind of fresher, cooler way to approach not drinking. It fits the healthier habits of the younger generation uh, and those who are looking to be healthier nowadays, which I think is about 75% of people are actively looking to be healthier, um, which is great. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, dude, it's, it's a simple answer really that I could have given you in, in, in one answer. We, we want to be the biggest, we want to be the best. Uh, we'll probably great. take in like a strategic at some point just so that we can penetrate, you know, more, more, more deeply on a, on a global sure. scale. Um, down the road, and and I don't know, mate. It's it's a it's a very difficult thing to to kind of plan f for. If I'm honest, like I would have said when we first started, 
well, we want to grow the brand, you know, we want to be here in three years and then sell for a billion dollars. And it's kind of like, it's a, it's a pipeline-y way of looking at things. I think in reality, businesses and life are a little bit more fluid than that. And you have to, yeah. um, you have to understand opportunities as and when they arise and take yeah. real time to understand what's best for the business, the brands, the shareholders, um, where can this thing get to, you know, could we be doing hundreds of millions of, of turnover in a few years on a global scale? And if so, should we keep it, you know, uh, you know, or, or do we want to grow the top line as quickly as possible and, and sell to a large strategic, you know, all of these things are options, um, and well worth considering, but that's exactly what you should do. Just consider them. I think, I think yeah. kind of setting, setting yourself very clear plans on kind of exit strategy in particular is premature at this stage for us. I want to ask you very quickly a little bit about what I see as an indirect market competitor and whether you see there's like a threat from that. And that's from CBD drinks. Mm. Lucas actually is drinking a CBD drink right now. It's called Trip. Very nice. Um, and it, there's a similar, there's a similar kind of idea where it's a drink, which isn't just like a Coke where you feel a little bit lame. Um, and it does actually have you know, relaxing properties in it, whatever. I'm not, I'm not an expert on the science, but I don't yeah. know, even at the Ivy, for example, in the UK, they sell like a CBD cocktail. Yeah. I don't know whether you see that as a, as a potential threat to clean cocktails, whether you'd want to move into that, maybe jump in or. I think it's a, it's a different, it's a similar, but a different marketplace. And sorry for the mm -hmm. kind of almost silly sounding answer, but, but it's kind of, there are lots of different spaces within the same space. So, so if you look at non-alcoholic as a, as a, as a general category, um, there's spirits, there's sparkling wine, there's wine. Um, there's, uh, what are they called? Uh, uh, like uh, hy hypertronics or something? I should really know, but there's a, there's a, you, can you for I've never heard of them. Adaptogens. Yeah. Sorry. I've gone completely crazy. There are adaptogen, adaptogenetic, uh, properties in, in some of them. They're all a kind of different, uh, vibe. And it's kind of, and then there's beer, of course, which is, which is the, the major one. Um, Clinko's kind of core, um, uh, mission, I suppose, is, is to give you the same, um, sense and experience of drinking an alcoholic cocktail that you already know and love with absolutely no alcohol, um, or, or any, um, feeling what, 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 what how would you say that CBD drink makes you feel? Um, um Laid, laid, I don't know. It's sort of, if you're in a high stressful situation, it can help you lay back a little bit. Um, and otherwise, yeah, I don't know. It's just that kind of feeling of relaxation that you might get from one drink, but it never goes any further kind of thing. You never get drunk basically, but you just may, you might, you know, be a little bit stressed, be a little yeah. bit less stressed. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, C CBD, um, I I'm no expert on CBD. It, it comes from cannabis, correct? Mm -hmm. Not, not, not exactly. Not exactly. Um, I think. Well, it, to be honest, as like Oli said, we don't know the science, but I think it might be an extract, but I don't think they would sell it if it was like... No, well, it's so there's two active components in weed, basically. The THC mm. is what gets you high, and then the CBD mm -hmm. is the other component, and it's basically just one of the two, so they extract sure, like sure. what's considered the illegal part, basically. Right, the THC. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so yeah, I mean, our, our brand 
doesn't venture into kind of having anything in our liquids that would make that would make you feel any different. We're a kind of direct replacement to a cocktail. Uh, and we aim to taste exactly the same as a cocktail. So essentially, um, our drinks, you know, are reported to have, um, you know, a full placebo effect on quite a few people that, that drink them. You know, they'll have, they'll have, they'll have the, they'll have the kind of, they'll have a non-alcoholic gin and tonic and they'll go, oh my God, this, this is like, I'm, I'm drinking, right? And they, they get that kind of elation from, you know, that first alcoholic drink. We actually, I'm going to make an absolute balls of this now. But um, but absolutely ages ago, we let me see if I can find it actually. Sorry, hang on. You can maybe cut this to be shorter. I was thinking I was thinking, Ollie, like we should try it on, on, on some friends, like maybe just give them some non-alcoholic gin and tonic from Clean yeah. and just watch Clean them like G. get get really drunk because they won't really know the difference, you know. So, so yeah. here you go. So 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 we um Strapped. I, I think you'll be able to tell that I'm not a scientist from sure. uh, the terminology that I'm about to strapped. use. But we basically <laughs> strapped a device uh, to the heads of a few people to measure the sensory response um, to drinking a full strength gin and tonic uh, and a Clinko non-alcoholic gin and tonic. And we didn't tell people um, what they, we just told people that they were drinking gin and tonics. Essentially, we didn't we didn't say that some of the options were non-alcoholic. And we've got a little thing here. Not only that, but the study found that the pleasure increase after drinking the non-alcoholic drink was even higher than the full-strength one. The Clinko Gin alternative provided the greatest average brain pleasure increase, 36%, with every sip of the drink, followed by Gordon's 30%, uh, and Cedar's 28%, which was a difference. But like the fact that you can drink... A Cedars, which is a competitor of ours, and it gives you a, a pleasure increase of 28%, um, which is very similar to Gordon's, which, by the way, is 40% proof at 30%, but Clinko giving you a 36% increase. I mean, all of that doesn't really mean anything other than the fact that your your brain is is doing a similar thing to you and your cognitive response when you're drinking a Clinko than you are a Gordon's. And sure. that is... You know, I found, I found, I found that, I mean, we have, we ran that test like years ago, but, um, but I actually think that that's quite amazing because obviously, again, I'm not here to bash alcohol, but the effects of having a few Gordons and tonics, um, will have a very detrimental effect on your sleep, on your skin, on your mood. If you're an anxious person, it'll make it worse if you're, you know, whatever. So it's kind of, again, I I agree. I mean, I was, I was probably, probably joking about like giving, giving friend, um, (laughs) Uh, like the non-alcoholic drink and, and seeing if they notice the difference. But I do think that that would be, that I would, we would see effects. And if you don't tell them that it's, that it's non-alcoholic, they would start to act a bit more quote, we unquote, had, drunk. We had a friend of Vogue's um, who was around here once and she's um, partial to a drink. And, uh, and she was kind of well on her way right to being quite loud and just just like just generally quite disruptive to it was quite funny i suppose but not really to to yeah. to kind of like to to the kind of general atmosphere and um she was drinking gin and tonics and past um when it started when she started to get quite drunk i started just making her clean gin and tonics and without <laughs> telling her and she didn't notice and kind of gradually just got like more manageable. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and she, she obviously thought she was having like the time of her life and she woke up the following yeah. day and was just like, Oh my God, like I feel like so much better than I thought I would. It's like, 
Well, yeah, you know, you you weren't <laughs> right. drinking, really. Right. Um, yeah, sorry, just to do with it on because um, I'm also aware of the time, but your your new documentary, Finding Michael, and um, I mean, it came out on Disney Plus, and I think it was pretty big, pretty big in the UK for sure. And I, I met I met Bear Grylls, actually. I, I invited him to the Oxford Union, and um, I know I know that he encouraged you not to go past base camp. And, and anyway, in any case, he was very involved in, in the project. He came with you, and he knew your brother. And I was just wondering what, what that experience was like, meeting Bear and, and being there also with um, Nims Porja. And, and yeah, well, what it's like working with legendary figures like that. I mean, I'll, I'll always look back at making that film as, you know, one of the most special, um, well, I was about to say projects, but times in, in my life, sure. you know, just like the, the experience of, um, well, working with them was, was incredible. I've always had a huge amount of respect for Bear. Bear, Bear is, um, he honestly is a really a wonderful guy. man. He's a great guy. Yeah. Um, always been very kind to me. If you've seen the film, you'll, you'll know when we first met, I was a kid at Eton and he came to talk mm. and he referred to himself as being the, uh, youngest pr- Brit to summit Mount Everest. He used the word summit, which mm. if you're being a pedantic asshole, which I was, uh, <laughs> it's not that that wasn't strictly true. My brother was the youngest Brit to summit Mount Everest. He was the youngest Brit to climb it. So I did you correct him. I did correct him. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I, I, I put my hand up and said, hey, um, have you heard of Michael Matthews? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, wasn't Michael Matthews the youngest to summit? Like, but, you know, and he was like, well, yeah, technically he would have been. And I was like, oh, I'm his brother. And, um, and he, he like, he was so kind. And I felt like a bit of a dick straight away, basically, because he was just like, he, 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 he like apologized and stuff, which he, of course he didn't need to do. And I felt like, oh God, I wish I hadn't kind of done this now. And he gave me a big hug and he was just like, your brother was an absolute legend and that record will always be his. And I was just like, again, I felt like, uh, God, I, I kind of almost wish I hadn't done this now, but he, uh, he was very, very kind to me afterwards and always kind of treated me like a little bro after that. Um, and obviously at the time I didn't realize that I would be working in entertainment or TV or whatever. But when I, when I did, I started bumping into him at the occasional thing and he was always just awesome to me. And, uh, a, an amazing producer called Tom Hutch and I, um, kind of molded the idea together because we'd worked on Hunted, did a television show called Hunted, which was, was quite good fun. You're basically trying to avoid um, the special forces for two weeks. Um, it's great fun, actually. It's, it's a cool show. And, cool. Uh, and, 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 and Bear knows Tom as well. So anyway, Tom came around and we had a coffee and Tom was like, have you ever thought about um, anything to do with Everest? And we were talking about Mike and how he was lost on the mountain and and the fact that there had been some body recoveries now because um, helicopters can now fly into camp too, which is something they weren't able to do before. You wouldn't want to be carrying a body through the Kumbu Icefall. Um, that's that's a almost certain uh, death wish for for those involved. Far too dangerous. Um, so being able to help chop the bodies out was, ama- it w- was a, a big development because you can bring the bodies down to camp three, camp two, and helicopter them out. Um, and so we started talking about that and it was a slow, slow moving thing because it's such a big idea. I spoke to my parents, just said, you know, would there be any interest in, in me going to Everest and seeing if we can recover Mike? And, um, in theory, it sounded great. Then of course, there's the potential loss of life, uh, to recover a body and, 
Um, but by all accounts, you know, risking human life to recover a body is obviously not something that's worthwhile. Uh, Bear then makes the introduction to Nims, who is a kind of yeah. superhuman uh, kind of force of nature up there. He described climbing Everest uh, being a similar thing to me walking to co-op and back. <laughs> Um, which I found marginally offensive given that I've done the Marathon de Sable and the Jungle Ultra and other bits and bobs that probably make me fitter than your average person. Um, but, uh, but he, he, he basically, he basically was like, um, you know, I, I can yo-yo up and down this thing. No worries. Like you, you, you don't have to be concerned for us. And I was like, well, look, the family is always going to be concerned for, for, you know, cause there's natural disasters and all kinds of stuff. And he just said, look, we're going to be climbing the mountain several times anyway whether you, you know, want to do this or not, we'd be very happy to do it. These guys, there are people in my team that have summited Everest over 20 times. It's their backyard. They, they get it. Like it's, it, it, it doesn't feel a risky thing to them. And like with all of that, we, we decided to, to progress, went to Everest. Um, I was at base camp for, for like five weeks, uh, which is, it's a really long time to be at base camp. So basically, Everest base camp is is just shy of the height of Kilimanjaro. It's like five thousand, so isn't it? Or right? Yeah, it's five. Is it is it five three something? I should know this, obviously, but it's a while. Hang on, let's have a look. So I shouldn't really be researching stuff in the middle of an interview. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Uh, yeah, five three six four uh, meters. So pretty high, yeah. you know, like you're, you're significantly higher than Mont Blanc. You're a very similar height to Kilimanjaro, you know, and, and you're living there for kind of five weeks. Um, it's actually really funny. You're kind of, if you spring out of bed quickly and you like walk to the, walk to the sink that we had outside this communal sink quickly and you brush your teeth and you walk back to your tent, you'll be like really out of breath. Like the air is, is really wow. thin and it's kind of like, you, you don't, you don't do much. Like you wouldn't be going like, exploring say and like running around and like it kind of it's not really like you're quite you don't move much for five weeks mm -hmm. which for me is a bit of an issue sorry i i, I keep just pivoting off the question so no, working with right. nims was really interesting his physiology yeah. is insane right like these guys can climb everest with no oxygen they they on one day on the second search they pushed from base camp straight to camp four in a single push um, which wow. to anyone listening, it's, it's a huge deal. It's, it's an enormous climb, uh, at alarming altitudes. Uh, you know, then they spend one night at camp four, then they're up and summiting and yo-yoing all over the place they're, they're like incredible people. Um, working with bear was, was a complete kind of honor and a pleasure. Uh, he exec produced the film. The film is one of one of the only projects well that cleanco the film and you know maybe a couple of other things are, are the things that i professionally have really cared about like i was so invested in this film that it's probably the only time i've i've really cared about the public response to something um but fortunately uh, i was very touched to to see that people um you know lo lo love the film but yeah, Tom Hutch messaged me um, just now, actually, whilst we were speaking, okay. which is completely bizarre. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what a yeah, he's, he's obviously, he's, he, uh, his ears are burning. Um, he's the other exec. Yeah. Um, 
I think the the thing why it got such a good response and personally why I liked it so much is kind of how you deal with grief and I think a really good way in the documentary and um you know kind of how you're walking back through his steps and all that kind of thing and I want maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey journey processing grief using not just the filming of it of course but the but the event itself and of course this is spoiler alert, and by the way, for anyone who hasn't listened, but of course you didn't end up finding Mike, but I, I feel like you still found sort of a, a piece with it through the process anyway. Yeah, I, I, I grew up um, in a very loving family um, and by, by all accounts had, had a phenomenal childhood kind of full of adventure and interesting places and, you know, but my, my dad was quite... Um, quite a stern kind of northerner like weakness was very much like discouraged crying of any kind would be seen as very weak um and uh and this is not me whinging by the way i'm just giving you some context as to why i i didn't really process the grief particularly well as a kid i kind of uh like you know if we'd fall off our bikes or whatever and like really hurt ourselves kind of like gritting teeth and kind of pretending that it didn't hurt was like the only option in our in our family you know we would i would essentially be punished um if i showed any weakness i know it kind of in today's world that sounds um like bad parenting almost but actually i i don't see it that way i'm quite happy the the you know i was i was i was brought up that way although i probably would loosen the reins a little bit on my own kids. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it, it kind of, it kind of led me to not be so sure about how I could show that I was upset around that time. I was 10. I remember coming up to my parents' bedroom, um, and they were both kind of stood there and they said, you know, Mike is lost on the mountain. And I just said, well, like, cool. Let me know when you find him. You know, like I was a 10 year old. And they were like, no, you know, this kind of thing doesn't really happen. And, you know, this is very bad news. You know, we, we might, we might never see him again. And I just didn't believe that. Like, I just, I was like, like, whatever, like my brother's a superhero, like, you know, you're wrong type thing. I just didn't process it. And then enough time passed where it just became a reality, attended the memorial service. And part of me, even then, because I wasn't a body, I was like, didn't fully believe that he was dead. Um, Took me a long time to realize that I was never going to see him again, basically, by which time you haven't really processed the grief because it didn't hit me as it would hit you if you were 35, because your brain obviously can process it much quicker. It becomes a reality. It's sudden. Like, you know that you've heard something from a reliable source and it's over, you know, whereas as a kid, you've got more whimsical, um, more fairy, fairy tale you know, thoughts, I suppose. So just wasn't able to... And I was, I was, I was always unsure as to whether or not it was okay for me to cry about it. Like I, I wasn't clear about whether or not the pain I was feeling was all right for me to show. So I was a very kind of, um, yeah, I suppressed a lot of emotion around that time. Um, and it's led me to be quite a black, black or white person, you know, when a issue or a problem is presented to me, both in my personal life and my business life, I look at it and I go, well, what's the quickest way to solve this? Let's do that. Bam. I don't dwell. I'm not an emotional person in that regard. I don't sit around thinking like, you know, how is this going to affect me? It just, I'm, I'm, I'm quite rough with my own thought process. 
So, so yeah, I just wasn't sure how to, how to process it. And as a result, I never really did. Like, you know, we, we remember him on his birthday, uh, obviously, and, uh, we would make speeches about him at dinners that we would have as a, as a family. And we've got photos of him all over the house. And, and, you know, I would use him as a force for good in my life. You know, I think death, um, divides us. I think some people, and neither is right or wrong. Some people, uh, dwell in, um, in, in kind of misery almost when, when a loved one dies and that's just their way of grieving and dealing with things. And that's absolutely fine. Others, uh, I use Mike when I, when I do kind of, sorry, using him is probably a bit of a strong thing. I feel closer to Mike whenever I'm putting myself through, um, the, these ultra marathons that I do and, and I raise charity, I raise money for, for the Michael Matthews foundation. But when I'm depleted and when I'm really at the end of my ability to function almost, and I'm starving and freezing and, and, you know, there's 30 K left in the day to cover, um, he's who I turn to. So I, I, I kind of feel, um, helped by him. I feel close to him. I feel like I'm doing something that might be making him proud. It makes me feel like a bigger, stronger person than perhaps I would be had he not died. So I try to use it, um, positively to do, to, to do positive things in his name for children. Um, but you know, I think, I think it's, uh, what was the question? <laughs> no, the question was originally just talk us a little bit about how the documentary helped you work through your grief. And I was just saying how I think that was one of the most beautiful things about it was you could see that process as you, as you went yeah. through it. So, sorry. So, so yeah, so basically being that close to his body, uh, and spending that amount of time as an adult focusing on him and finding him and, you know, and my mind would wander into what our lives might have been like, you know, had he not died and would he have kids? Would our kids be friends? Would we be working together? Would they be going to the same school? You know, what would his wife be like if he had one, you know, like, you know, would, would our wives be friends? It's kind of like you, you, you just, you, you have all these, um, what feel like they might be sad thoughts, but actually they're not, they're, they're really like lovely heartwarming thoughts to me. Um, and yeah, just the process of being on Everest made me, able to, to, to just lose a lot of the kind of hate that I was carrying around. The film doesn't cover it, but there was, um, circumstances surrounding his death that could have certainly been avoided. There were mistakes made by the company, uh, that he climbed with, uh, unquestionable mistakes, uh, the, had they not made them, he'd probably still be here, right? So I grew up with hatred towards these men. Um, and I felt rightly or wrongly that essentially my brother had been killed, really. And that's what I was carrying around with me as a teenager. And I would drink very aggressively and it would kind of come out of me, you know, um, in conversation, mostly when I was drunk. And I've now learned from, you know, the occasional therapy session that the, the two could very much be linked, although I've never wanted to link the excessive drinking to Mike. Um, and it's kind of, um, I was able to just let all of that go on the mountain. I don't even know the guys, you know, they're probably aware they've made mistakes. They're much old. Some, one of them's dead, actually. I remember being delighted as, as a kid when I heard that he died, but all of that is negative. It's not, it's not a nice, 
way to exist. It's, it's negative energy to carry around, you know, being happy at the misfortune of others is, is not a place where anyone wants, wants to be. It's just where I was before. And, you know, for years I was thinking, God, I would love to get to this guy's house and give him a piece of my mind and like beat him up or whatever. And it's just like, it's all kind of juvenile uh, stuff that of course, like, isn't really realistic. Like, you know, do I want to spend time in jail for, <laughs> you know, doing something that I'll almost certainly regret? Um, you know, and, and the mountain kind of taught me just to let go of a lot of that. And the mountain is a very difficult place to exist. It's a very difficult place to live. Humans aren't supposed to function at that height. Mistakes happen. People make mistakes. You know, people die. Uh, and I was able to just really let go of, of the, of the bad energy that I had towards his death and, and, and understand it more. Uh, and again, another spoiler by returning the body of the Nepali Sherpa to his family, I was really able to kind of offer what we were so desperate for that kind of reunion, um, of, of the body and the family so that, um, physical grief could, could take place, you know, at, at, at a, at a burial site or in their case, they cremate so that the soul can pass through to the afterlife in, in Buddhist culture. But seeing them, um, take away what we were so desperate for after the huge efforts that we made to recover Michael, um, was the result, I think my sister says quite beautifully, was the result that Michael would have wanted anyway, right? Like, you know, I think she, she says in the That's film beautiful. that if there was one ticket for one of the bodies off the mountain, Mike would have preferred us to give it to that Nepali family anyway, right? So, uh, which is probably true. So, I mean... I mean, look, Spencer. That's that's a beautiful story, and and you. I clearly from this interview, as I've, I've learned, I we did the research, but I've learned a lot more about you. And and from we didn't even touch on Made in Chelsea because I feel like that. Thankfully, so you're so beyond that. I just feel like you're so beyond that. And and look, I I feel like we're running out of time. And, and you know, we're a student podcast. I've got I've got a class actually very soon. Um, but but yeah, I wanted to ask you briefly in a few sentences, maybe. Maybe you could give some advice to to our listeners who are mostly young students like like me and Ollie. Yeah, I suppose I'm probably best placed to talk about the the drinking stuff rather than giving just general life advice. You know, I'm still sure, learning, sure. Um, you know, all of the time and, and growing and evolving. And I think, you know, uh, most people at the fine establishment that you guys go to will be young and ambitious. And, you know, again, at the risk of sounding cliche, just, you know, I, I would absolutely just ch chase your dreams. I don't think anything is impossible. Uh, if you, if you, if you think again, that you have, that you might be drinking too much and it's slowing you down, try and make the change early. Probably my biggest regret in life is that I, made this big monumental shift in my behavior when I was 29, you know, I had a great time in my teenage years and my twenties, but like, would I have preferred to have done that when I was 24, 25? Like, absolutely. I'd be five years ahead, you know? Uh, so try and catch, um, things early, but you know, live your life, enjoy yourself, value your friendships, you know, create a great, a great community around you and live in the belief that you can achieve anything. If somebody else has achieved something before you, then it's possible, right? And if nobody else has achieved what you want to do before you, then it's exciting. So right. 
get out and get it Thank and you, tackle Spencer. it. Thanks, Bez. We'll we'll try and take that advice with us as we as we go through the day. And thank you so much for joining us. I I hope that you enjoyed that you enjoyed the interview. As Love it was it was great great to meet you both. Uh, congratulations on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, yeah, wish you all the best. Hope it hope it grows and smashes it. We're we're trying we're trying. Uh, let let's hope for it, guys. And um and thank you for all those listening right now. Tune in next Saturday where we'll be speaking to Nishma Rob, who just stepped down as the head of marketing at Google UK. Thank you very much, Spencer and Loaf out. <laughs>